Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, it's Dan Ambender here. It is our distinct pleasure and honor to bring you this rare opportunity to share moments with a cardio nerds luminary whose visionary ideas disrupted the status quo and shifted the paradigm and the care of patients with heart failure in this multidisciplinary part series led by Dr. Sherlina Bobi and Mark Belkin from the University of Chicago. We get to learn from the one and only Dr. Milton Packer about the evolution of the neurohormonal hypothesis and discuss a host of other topics that you will most certainly love to hear about. Team, you've hopefully heard the first four parts of Dr. Packer's perspective. So let's dive right into part five, the ejected fraction of the destroyed heart, where Dr. Packer shares his thoughts on the term guideline-directed medical therapy, guidelines in general, and the challenges of using the ejection fraction to measure systolic function. Remember, CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Help others find us by rating and reviewing the show. And with that, let's get right on into it and hear some more from Dr. Milton Packer. As we spoke about a little bit in our intro before we started recording, you had come to University of Chicago as a visiting lecturer in the fall of 2019. You spoke with myself and some of our co-fellows, and you had challenged us to explain the utility of reassessing a patient's ejection fraction and a patient has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and optimally tolerated GDMT who is no longer having symptoms. And I thought it'd be great if, if you could explain some of the, uh, your reasoning to our cardio nurse well, audience. A couple, a couple concepts. I never, ever use the acronym GDMP. Never. I never use the phrase guideline-directed medical therapy. And the reason is I don't know what it means. If you, re, if you say, oh, I'm going to do therapy according to the guidelines. Well, okay, read the heart failure guidelines. They're about 160 pages long. They contain five to 600 recommendations. I guess if you followed five of those 500 recommendations, you would be doing guideline-directed medical therapy. What is guideline-directed medical therapy? I have no idea. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it consists of. I don't know what the building blocks are. I don't know what doses to achieve. Where do you see the phrase GDMP used? Well, it's most often used in patients' medical records. And that's because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get some flack for this. So someone in the cath lab who is an expert in structural heart disease, has tried to fix something and says, oh, well, gee, I can't fix it. What's the plan for the patient? GDMP. I have a patient with uh, atrial fibrillation. I'm going to try to ablate. Oh, well, I can or I can't. What's the plan for the patient after the procedure? GDMP. GDMP is an acronym which directs the person who reads it in no particularly useful manner. It means whatever you want 
it to mean, and the person who wrote it probably didn't give a lot of thought as to what they meant, and the person who reads it certainly does not have any clue what the person who wrote it meant. What what is GDMP? I don't know. Gee, I know what I think represent the drugs that are foundational that reduce mortality. But that's based on clinical trials. That's not based on a guideline committee. I've written all sorts of editorials that have been unbelievably critical of the guideline process. I know there are cardiologists who view the guidelines as a biblical document written by prophets with incredible amount of wisdom and foresight. Well, I don't think there's ever been a guideline committee like that. Why do I read a guideline document? Well, because... It just represents someone's opinion. And I like reading what people think. But is that opinion worth worship? There are people who worship guidelines. They have religious ceremonies where they put the guidelines up on an altar and they make sacrifices to it. Dr. Packer, I just have to say, I kind of, this is all making me wish that I could go back and listen to your stand-up routines, because I, I feel like you were underselling yourself, because I am cracking up. <laughs> I can see Dan's totally losing it. <laughs> well, this is definitely uh, an, an overperformance. And, and, now and, we it, know, it, exactly. <laughs> this is how you put yourself through college. Now I understand. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the, 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 I'm really glad that, to my knowledge, there is there is no audio or video evidence of my ever being a stand-up comic. So I'm really glad because if there were, then you would have a comparison. And that Dr. Packer, until now, until now, now we actually do have some Yeah, now thank you so much. Uh oh my God. So l- let me rephrase then, because that was a, I love that viewpoint. If yeah. once someone is on Optimally tolerated clinical trial proven mortality medicine. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did you use the word optimal? Oh. What, what? Did you use the word optimal medical therapy? No, no, I said optimally tolerated. I, 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 I think I, 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 look, you know, I know my computer audio isn't working that well. I just want to make sure I know, I know you didn't say that because you couldn't possibly have used the phrase optimal medical therapy, right? No, no. Um, if when a patient is on clinically trial proven therapy for the reduction of mortality in heart failure and are now asymptomatic, at what dose? At the doses that were shown to be effective in the clinical trial. And we we know those are the right doses. The, we do not. Okay, so help me out here. Tell me what we're supposed to be defining. We we were curious as to when you would recheck someone's ejection fraction on an echocardiogram once they're on medicine for their heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I guess it depends on whether um, I ran the echo lab and needed to put my kids through college. Uh, if that were the case, I would probably get an echocardiogram a lot. That's not the question you, you wanted to ask, right? I'd, 
I think that was the answer. If it- oh, no, I didn't give you an answer. I, I gave you a question. So the, so the, the best answer is not an answer. The best answer is a question that makes someone think. Because I can't give anyone any answers. Here is my, my best answer. Uh, if I am using uh, four foundational drugs that reduce cardiovascular mortality in patients with heart failure and a reduced ejection fraction, and I am using my best judgment as to what doses to give, would I recheck the ejection fraction? And the answer is I would, but it would not be an actionable event. In other words, if the ejection fraction were unchanged, my treatment would be the same. If the ejection fraction were markedly improved, the treatment would be the same. You might say, well, why would you look at the ejection fraction again? And I would say, well, maybe if it went up, I might be able to tell the patient that, and maybe the patient would be happy to hear that. But I wouldn't do it because it would change my regimen. Just uh, uh, Dr. Packard, for our junior colleagues who are listening, of course, we're talking about uh, reevaluation of ejection fraction after one's already determined the need for ICD and or CRTD after placing them on medical therapy. Is that right? Well, you know, we can have a really good discussion about the role of ICDs. The, um, well, can I bring up one thing that's really sort of interesting? Please. Um, can I ask you guys a question? You think ejection fraction measures systolic function? Uh, the answer has to be no, because we are all uh, seasoned multiple choice test takers. True or false testers. Right. <laughs> so you already know that because of the of the setup, that there's, you know, you, you already, you got to where you are in life because you already knew how to take tests. I mean, that that's a pre, prerequisite for success. And so if someone says, do you think that something which is obviously true is true, then it must be false. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Right. So uh, let me, th- this is really important because I, I rarely get a chance to talk about this. Can someone tell me where, who invented the term ejection fraction? Oh, come on. Someone had to, right? There was no term ejection fraction in at any point in time during the Roman Empire or in at any point in time in the Middle Ages. There was no ejection fraction. There was no ejection fraction in the 18th century. There was no ejection fraction. The first report of the term ejection fraction was in a paper written in the 1960s from the University of Virginia. The first author of the paper was Stuart Bartle. Stuart Bartle was a cardiology fellow. Well, they didn't really have the term then, but cardiology fellow uh, at the University of Virginia. And University of Virginia at that time had one of the first cath labs in the country. And um, they injected dye and he did this ratio between stroke volume and end diastolic volume. 
and he gave it the term ejected fraction, and people fell in love with it. So you know what happened to the term ejection fraction after that, but you don't know what happened to Stuart Bartle. Stuart Bartle finished his cardiology training at the University of Virginia, and he then left cardiology and went into psychiatry. He became actually one of the foremost psychiatrists in New York City and was unbelievably well-known for his humanitarian work in psychiatry. He happened to have been at the same hospital that I was in New York, and so I met him. And I met him with great respect. I knew of his work in psychiatry, but I went to him and I said, oh my God, I'm meeting the person who first invented the term ejection fraction. He said, yes. And when a cardiologist got excited about it, I knew it was time to go into psychiatry. Ejection fraction doesn't measure systolic function. Ejection fraction measures volume. So what is ejection fraction? It's stroke volume over end diastolic volume. And basically, the body maintains stroke volume in a pretty narrow range. So essentially, when you're measuring ejection fraction, you're basically measuring end diastolic volume. You're measuring primarily the denominator, where there are two types of uh, ways that the heart can be destroyed. You can destroy the heart in a way in which the heart dilates, or you can destroy the heart in a way in which it doesn't dilate. A classic example of destroying the heart in a way that it dilates is a big anterior wall myocardial infarction. Classic way of destroying the heart in a way that it doesn't dilate is cardiac amyloid. Have you ever seen what a heart with cardiac amyloid looks like? It is awful, but the heart doesn't dilate. And because the end diastolic volume doesn't go up, the ejection fraction is preserved because the ejection fraction is just the end diastolic volume. The stroke volume remains the same. The end diastolic volume enlarges in one disease, so the ejection fraction falls. It doesn't enlarge in the other, so you call it preserved ejection fraction. Is systolic function normal in people with cardiac amyloid? Oh, my God, no. You want to measure systolic function? Measure strain. And what is strain in people with cardiac amyloid? It's awful. What's strain in people who have big dilated hearts and end stage? It's awful. The strain measurements in both are the same. The ejection fraction in one is 50%. The ejection fraction in the other is 20%. What has the ejection fraction told you? Nothing. That blew my mind two years ago, and you're blowing my mind again. <laughs> so if you want to know systolic function, measure systolic function. What does the heart do in systole? It shortens. So if you have an echocardiogram, you can measure shortening. It's called strain. 
it's the distance between two points, and it gets a little shorter, and that's called shortening, and that's called drain, and that is systolic function. Ejection fraction is not systolic function. It's just end diastolic volume that happens to have stroke volume in the calculation for some historically odd reason. Dr. Packer, this has been such a great discussion, and you've been disrupting my status quo throughout it all. So our last question is related to another CardioNerds guest luminary, Dr. Yushin Sun. Well, CardioNerds, that was a lot to think about. Join us for the final part of this great perspective series where Dr. Packer will share his thoughts on mentorship and the secret to immortality. You'll definitely want to stay tuned for this one. Alrighty then, time to make like an S2 and split. 